Please join me in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, a message I'm calling Our Great Help. One of the American ideals we have is the idea of somebody perhaps being a self-made man or a self-made woman. But I would contend that it really never is such a thing as a self-made man. No matter where you are in life, how successful you've been, you've gotten to where you are with an abundance of help. In fact, start at the very beginning. Your existence was not your idea. A God, a sovereign God ordained that you would live and he made you a blessing to your mom and dad and you would not have survived infancy had your mom and dad not sacrificed a lot for you. You could not take care of your own basic needs even through childhood. Even into adolescence, you didn't make it through adolescence on your own. Maybe as a teenager, you didn't want to admit it, but you needed a lot of help there from your parents, uh, food and clothing and shelter and transportation. Even that wisdom and guidance they were giving you, you needed it. But then you say, no, I'm a self-made person because of what I did as an adult. And then you think, well, actually, you had a lot of help even into adulthood. Maybe it was a key reference for you. Maybe somebody offering you a first job, maybe a mentor at work, some role models, but even if you started your own company, which is to be commended, but you even there, if it was successful, you had a lot of people working for you that helped you to be a success. Just making the point, I don't think there is such a thing as truly a self-made man or self-made woman. But here's the real point this morning. There certainly is no such thing as a self-made Christian. You have had the Spirit's help, his essential help at every turn from conviction to conversion, to sanctification, to any spiritual service, the Holy Spirit has been large in all of that. God is the one who caused you to be born again. You did not save yourself. We see that in places like Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So it was God's doing that you came to faith in Jesus. It was his working and we take no credit for it. And every step after conversion has been marked by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus now in this upper room discourse, the night of his arrest, the next morning he's going to be crucified. He's teaching them once again about the Holy Spirit. And I think this will be a great encouragement and reminder to us. So John 16, picking up in verse five, Jesus said, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has 
is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. On this night of his betrayal, on this night of his arrest before the crucifixion, the mood in the upper room is serious. It's heavy. They'd had a meal together. I'm sure there were some wonderful things there, but they keep hearing Jesus say, I'm about to leave you. And all the things being said, that's what they're locking in on. Jesus said of them in verse six, sorrow had filled their hearts. Jesus is talking about leaving them and he's talking specifically about leaving them through this arrest, through the crucifixion the next day. He's leaving them, thankfully also, through resurrection and ascension back into heaven. They're not grasping all that, but they are grasping. He keeps saying he's leaving and they are simply sad about that. But notice Jesus keeps reminding them that I'm going to send someone to you. And he makes reference once again to the precious gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's teaching them about one who is going to be a great help to them as he goes. Indeed, as Jesus said back in John 14, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And so this morning, let's remind ourselves again about the Holy Spirit. And let's start with this. Let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, the one Jesus calls here the helper. Who is he? Verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is the third time Jesus has taught his disciples in the upper room about the Holy Spirit. We saw him talked about in chapter 14, then chapter 15, now chapter 16. And Jesus each time refers to him as the helper. And in the Greek language, that word is parakletos. Sometimes you hear people talk about, they bring it over in English, transliterate it. That's the word paraclete. Several English translations use different words for that Greek word. Uh, the translation I'm preaching from, the ESV, uses the word helper. You might be holding a translation that brings that word parakletos over as counselor. That's acceptable. Some use the word advocate. The old King James uses the word comforter. In that time, that word parakletos referred to a legal assistant who pleaded a cause or presented a case. So a paraclete then was one who would come to your side, who would come to your aid, who could come to your defense. Someone who could counsel you, perhaps even represent you, Certainly, he is there to help you. And Jesus says, so helpful is this helper that if I don't go away, he doesn't come. That's the plan. I leave, he comes. It's to your advantage. Can you imagine it? Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away so that he will come. Now, if I'd been in the upper room with the other disciples that night, I'm sure I would have heard this like they heard this. Thinking that I don't want anybody else. <laughs> Jesus, we love you. We've walked with you for these three years. Don't, don't tell us about another one. That's not encouraging. I would be feeling that same sadness. But let's remind ourselves of who Jesus says he's sending. He's sending another helper. Remember, we first saw that phrase back in chapter 14, verse 16. And we talked about it then, that that word another is significant. There are two different Greek words for another. There's the word another of a different kind. And then there's this word used in the text, another of the same kind. So Jesus is saying, I'm going, but I'm going to send you a helper. Another of the same kind is me. And that's significant. When I was a teenager, before I got a car, I rode around a lot on a 10-speed bicycle. And it was a good one. My dad had bought this for me. It was a high-quality 10-speed bicycle, but it was stolen. In fact, as I counted up, I think I had three bikes stolen from my backyard where I grew up. That's a story for another time. 
but even locked up, uh, they would be stolen at times. And this was a really good bike. I was sad to see it go, and I was eager to replace my transportation. So I went shopping for another bike, and I found one. And I found one that I thought was really cool. It had a denim seat to it. And so like it looked just like a pair of blue jeans, that denim seat with the stitching on it and everything. And then the whole bike had a denim theme to it. They painted it up so it looked like denim. It had the texture kind of looking to it, and they had little stitches painted into it, and it looked really cool to me for the first week that I owned it. Then I realized this really looks pretty bad, and this is not a good bike, and it looks kind of cheap compared to the bike that I used to have. And then it really was mechanically not anywhere as good as the bike I had. And I was so disappointed I replaced a really, really good bike with a really poor bike. It was not a bike of the same quality. Jesus, when he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you another helper, there's no letdown here. They can't comprehend it, but we live in that time that the Holy Spirit's come. We realize this is not less. The Holy Spirit is not inferior. Jesus is saying, this helper's coming. He's going to help you in the same ways that I have been helping you. I'm sending you one who is equal to me. So let's consider together who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, God the Spirit. This brings us into that realm again, this exciting realm of God, how he is. He is a triune God. He's one God existing eternally and interacting as three persons. So Jesus, when he's with them, he is God in the flesh. Remember at Christmas, just last month, we talked about Emmanuel, God with us. And that's who Jesus is, God in the flesh. We talked about it from John chapter one. So who is the, who is the Holy Spirit? Jesus, he's coming and he's going to be God, the spirit living in you. He's going to be carrying on and completing the work that I started in you. And I love what we see here in our text. If you look with me now, verses 13 through 15 again, I want you to see it with your own eyes as we kind of hover over this for a moment. I want you to see the interplay of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this glorious truth of the Trinity here. Verse 13 of chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now listen to this. He will glorify me. So hear it. God, the spirit is going to glorify me. Jesus says, God, the son, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the father has is mine. Jesus says, therefore, I said that he, the spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's beautiful. You can ponder that even more this afternoon, but just see God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit interacting there. Jesus says, I'm sending the spirit to you. So in, in this upper room discourse, he'll speak quite comfortably. If I'm sending the spirit to you, sometimes it says, he'll say the father is sending the spirit to you in my name. So you see that the working here of the triune God, then we see here that the spirit, what's he going to do? He's going to disclose to you and remind you of the things that I taught you, the things that I got from the father. And the Spirit's going to glorify me, Jesus said, just like I've been glorifying the Father. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always in perfect unity, always working in perfect unison. In fact, you see it in your own salvation. Now, you didn't know this the moment you believed. You just knew that you were a sinner. Jesus could save you. You trusted in him. But as you pan back and as you study the scriptures, you realize the triune God was at work that you would be among the believers. So we think about God the Father. He sent his Son. And Jesus came and he died on a cross for your sins and he was raised from the dead. And the spirit of God brought you to the son that you would believe in him. And so God at work in his fullness to bring you to faith. So when Jesus says, I'm sending you another helper, 
There's nothing inferior about the one who's coming. In fact, the Holy Spirit's going to enhance their ability to understand the things of Christ that they've heard from him. When the Spirit comes, he's going to enhance their experience of the love of Christ. And as the Spirit comes, he's going to enhance their ability to carry out the work of Christ. So we've been talking together about the person of the Holy Spirit, and that's glorious. But now let's talk together about the work of the Holy Spirit. And notice here, Jesus again calls him helper. Again, advocate, some translations, comforter, some translations. But helper, that is also an adequate word for that Greek word. But the danger of the word helper is we might use that word here like we sometimes do in our context. Usually when somebody says, I have a helper, we think of that person as a junior helper. This is my, this is my assistant that's going to help me through life. I'm in charge. This helper is kind of like my sidekick. Make sure you don't bring that idea helper to this text, because that's not at all who the Holy Spirit is at all. When he comes on the scene, he's in charge. This is God, the Spirit. He is helping, but this is profound help. thought about it this week, and I thought, what, what would this be like? I thought, if I were coaching a football team, I would quickly realize I need help. I don't understand all the schemes and all the plays and just wouldn't know how to run a football program. So if somebody told me, hey, Jim, I have a contact, and I could bring in Nick Saban to help you the coach of Alabama. I realized quickly I should probably back out of that illustration, use another coach that you like. And so I apologize. I don't want to divide the church here. So insert your favorite coach there in this illustration. So let's just say, I don't know what I'm doing as a coach. I love football, but I don't know how to coach a team. And somebody says, I will, I, I know a guy and I know this coach, this famous coach, and he can come in and, and do it. So if Nick Saban or your favorite coach were to come in to help me, he would not be my assistant coach. I would relinquish the role of being in charge. I need such help. And this person brings such experience and skill. I'm yielding the head coach spot and I'm just going to come along and just, you do your thing. That's the type of help I'm talking about. And that's the type of help the Holy Spirit brings in your life. I don't need just a little bit of something from him. I need, I need a total takeover, a total transformation. And that's what Jesus says is coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. So what's he going to do specifically in us? He's going to drive and empower our sanctification. Meaning he's going to drive and empower our growth in Christ's likeness. We can't produce that in ourselves. We're, in, we're incapable, but the Holy Spirit of God will do that work. He's going to do that by being in us, as Jesus promised back in chapter 14, by changing us from the inside, empowering us. Places like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, he's, he's going to gift us. It's another topic for another time, but Holy Spirit gives us gifts. He guides us. And yes, he sanctifies us. Famously in places like Galatians 5, remember, we learned there about the fruit of the Spirit. And so the, the Spirit of God can bring about this Christ-like fruit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We can't produce that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is the type of help he brings. He'll, he'll make you more and more like Christ over time. Back in chapter 14, Jesus said, he's going to be with you forever in you. He's going to be teaching you and reminding you. And really, this is the same thing he picks up here in chapter 16, verse 13. See it again. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Verse 14 again. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So think about it. This is how 
the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. You ever wondered, how did John know to write these words? How, how, did, how could he remember all these things that Jesus said in the upper room? Because the Holy Spirit did what Jesus said he would do. He's going to teach you all these things. Back in chapter 14, he's going to bring these things to your remembrance. And so the apostles were able to write down accurately as the Spirit guided the things that he wanted us to know about what took place in places like the upper room. And the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit who's with us. It helps us to understand the Scriptures, helps us apply the Scriptures through his insight and through power. So we have the Holy Spirit of God, a great helper, and he's working internally in the believers, those first disciples, and now in us. But also there's a great external work of the Holy Spirit as well that Jesus calls out here. We've seen it already in chapter 15. We see that the Holy Spirit not only is conforming us to the image of Christ through his working, but he also empowers and enables our fulfillment of the Great Commission in the world. Do you remember in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we have this promise from Jesus. You're going to go and make disciples. But he says, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How is he with us? Through the Holy Spirit. And he's with us and he's enabling us to carry out this mission. He does it partly because he sends us out to share the gospel but the Holy Spirit is testifying along with us. We saw that back in chapter 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So as we share the gospel, we can be confident that the Spirit of God is also testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel that he's leading us to share. So he's gonna enable us to share the message, he's testifying, but also this, notice Jesus speaks a lot now about conviction. The Holy Spirit's gonna convict unbelievers, leading them to faith in response to the hearing of the gospel. Let's go back into verse eight. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. We can say it this way. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, as Jesus promised, he will bring conviction and convincing. This word convict means this, to present or expose facts, to convince of the truth the definition goes on this way. The spirit works on the minds of the unsaved to show them the truth of God for what it is. Normally, this process includes human aid. Again, we're bearing witness. Spirit of God is right alongside empowering that. He's also bearing witness. He's convincing people of the truth of the gospel. That convincing work we couldn't pull off on our own. But indeed, he does bring conviction at the same time. He exposes guilt. So Jesus speaks of three directions where the Holy Spirit is going to bring this type of conviction. First of all, he's going to convict the world concerning sin. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that. Have you noticed most human beings believe that they're better than they actually are? Most human beings have a very optimistic view of themselves far beyond anything the scripture says that any human being should think. Most people you would talk to, they would confess, well, I'm not perfect but they're not at all troubled by that. They're, yeah, I have some imperfections. I make some mistakes. I'm not perfect. But most human beings will not then wear the word sin on them. I'm not perfect, but don't call me a sinner. That's too, too extreme. That's insulting to me. Okay, I'm not perfect, but don't at all think of me as a rebel against God. 
I'm not an enemy of God. In reality, the scripture says we indeed were enemies of God before we came to Christ. That's what the scripture says. But most human beings, all human beings, they cannot see that except for the working of the Holy Spirit who will convict the world concerning sin. You ever been driving down the road and you notice a person in another car has a problem with their car and they're not aware? I've had times where I see the smoke billowing out of a tailpipe of another car and I don't know a lot about cars. I think that's a problem. That might be a blown head gasket, you know. I mean, something's going on there, but they don't know. They're just probably singing along the radio and I don't know what to do about it because I can't cut them off to tell them. But that's how human beings are. They're just going along. I'm fine. I don't have a problem. And we can see it through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of scripture. Like, they got a big problem, but they can't see it. Like, what's going on here? They need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a merciful thing that God does. Do you remember when God did this for you? And if you're a believer, he did this for you. You were going through your life also unaware that there was a problem. You heard about sin before. You might have even grown up in church. You might have used the word, I'm a sinner. But you weren't alarmed about that sin. You weren't willing to do anything about it. You heard about Jesus being a savior, but you didn't see any big need. There's no urgency that I would trust in Jesus. You're totally unaware of the real situation. So unconcerned, unconcerned. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Maybe after hundreds and hundreds of sermons that you heard. But then suddenly there was that day where you're like, I am not fine. This is a crisis. I'm estranged from a holy God. Whatever words you had, you saw your trouble. How did you finally see that? That was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that that sermon was better that week than the previous weeks. The Holy Spirit allowed you to see the real you, created a crisis in you. Do you remember? You felt your sin that I need to do something. I need to trust in Christ. That is a gift of God. We see examples of this conviction in the scriptures that are helpful in Isaiah chapter 6, remember Isaiah in the temple? He's hearing, holy, holy, holy. He's experiencing the holiness of God. And what did he do? He said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was in crisis. Remember, God mercifully then touched his lips, cleansed him of his sin. That's a picture of conviction. Or how about at Pentecost? When the Spirit came, just as Jesus had been promising, the Spirit of God, of course, has always been around. But here's when he came in a new way, as Jesus promised, indwelling the believers now permanently. And it was a dramatic occasion. And many people were convicted of their sin on that day. Remember, Peter preached his first sermon. This is Acts 2. We get to Acts 37. Listen to the response to his first sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's a great way of describing conviction. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter preaches that and people are convicted so much so and so amazingly that 3,000 people believed in Jesus that day and were baptized. Like, how did that happen? That must have been some great preaching from Peter. No. No, he was faithful. You can read the sermon in there. But this was a movement of the Holy Spirit who came upon them and caused people mercifully to see their sin. So they're distressed by it. And they say, what do we do? And Peter faithfully told him, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to follow after Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He convicts people of sin and leads them to Christ. What else does he do? Jesus says here, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning righteousness. Specifically, he's going to convict the world concerning their false righteousness, 
D.A. Carson said it this way, the reason why the paraclete convicts the world of its righteousness is because Jesus is going to the Father. As we have observed, one of Jesus's most startling roles with respect to the world was to show up the emptiness of its pretensions to expose by his light the darkness of the world for what it is. You remember in Jesus's ministry, he would interact with those religious leaders known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a type of righteousness, an external righteousness. Remember Jesus called them out for wearing their long robes, saying their long public prayers for the applause of people. They were meticulous in their carrying out of the ceremonial laws. But Jesus would tell them, but you're not righteous. You're playing the part of righteous, but you're not really righteous. Remember, he used that word hypocrite for them an awful lot. One of the ways he described them is very striking. He called them whitewashed tombs. Jesus said to these Pharisees, you're like pretty graves. Inside are dead men's bones, he said to them. But you have this show of righteousness. This is what the Holy Spirit will show people. You think you have righteousness. You have a type of rule-keeping type of righteousness that's totally inadequate. It's wrong. It can't save you. You need real righteousness that comes through Christ. So many people have a type of inadequate righteousness. One of them is a comparative righteousness. Before I came to know Jesus, this was the type of righteousness I had. I could compare myself to other people and really would think of myself as better than I really was. One of the ways that I thought I was better than other people when I was a younger teenager before saved around 17 was I, I thought I was better than other people in one way because I was never going to be unkind to old people. And the reason that one comes to mind, I remember I knew of some friends, they, they got to know a crabby older lady, and uh, I guess she probably yelled at them to get off the lawn or something, but they, they didn't like that. So they just found ways to kind of throw pebbles at her door just to harass that crabby older lady. And I remember hearing about that thinking, I would never do that. I can't believe they're doing that to an old person. I, really, I felt righteous. I can remember that righteous feeling. I had thousands of other sins. But by comparison to those guys who would throw pebbles in an old lady's door, I'm better, I'm better than them. There's a comparative type of righteousness. There's an external type of righteousness, righteousness of like the Pharisees. I, I do some outward stuff. I go to church. I don't live for Jesus, but I go to church. I do some outward religious stuff. I'm righteous. That is inadequate. And the Holy Spirit will help you see that's inadequate. <clears throat> or it's a selective type of righteousness. Yeah, I do some things wrong, but I don't do a lot of other wrong things. And therefore, I'm righteous. So some people do it this way. You know, I... I I cuss, but I don't say all the cuss words. There are like four words that at this continuum, I don't say. I say all these other words, but I'm better than other people and I'm not as bad as I could be, therefore I'm righteous. That is inadequate. Well, I don't commit crimes. All right, I don't commit felonies. <laughs> I hang around in the misdemeanor realm, therefore I'm righteous. That's all inadequate. This is what we would call filthy rags righteousness. We get that phrase from Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. We need another type of righteousness. We need a righteousness that we can't produce. We need it from Christ. And that's what Paul came to discover. He himself was a Pharisee, tried to make himself righteous through his keeping of the law. But he came to say this through faith in Christ. He said in Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Everybody needs that righteousness from Jesus credited to you. And the Holy Spirit will help you see that. My favorite illustration of what that's like when you don't have righteousness and you get it, 
It makes me think about when I married Joy. When Joy and I got married, I was still in college, but she had been out of school for a year and working as a teacher, and she was paying off some college loans and saving money. So on our wedding day, when I married Joy, Joy was the great treasure to me and still is. And so I I married Joy, but I not only get Joy, but I get the $3,000 she'd been saving. We had a joint account. And so everything she worked for, dropped into my hands too. So I brought nothing financially in, got her money as well. Listen, that's what happened for you and me. When we put our faith in Jesus, we had no righteousness, no real righteousness. So all we brought into the relationship with Jesus was our sin that needed to be forgiven. We just brought our faith. You can save me, Jesus, I need you. He's the real treasure and remains the real treasure. But his righteousness gets credited to us. That's how the scripture talks. Faith being credited to you, reckoned to you as righteous. All I brought is faith. I'm now in union with Jesus and all of his righteousness now is in my account. So when God looks at you, looks at me as believers, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So think of it. You have a joint account with Jesus and only Jesus has been making deposits of righteousness. You, You had nothing. So it's amazing what God does. The Holy Spirit helped us to see, I'm not righteous. I thought I was. And I now see I need what only Jesus can give to me. Do you see your need today? Hopefully the Holy Spirit's working right now in you that you'll see I've had faulty, not real righteousness. I need to trust in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The scholar says this way. One scholar says the world's judgment is profoundly wrong and morally perverse And now the paraclete convicts the world of its false judgment because in the impending triumph of Christ, the prince of this world stands condemned. And so if you think about it, in the world, the world has a wrong sense of judgment. In fact, in the eyes of the world, people believe that we're the ones wrong and needing judgment. And so people are hating all the wrong things and loving all the wrong things. Their assessment is is faulty. So the world has pity on us and anger toward us because they think you're on the wrong side of history. And they think you need to get with us in their redefining of everything that's good and decent and holy. You need to leave that Bible, come on board with us, or you're going to be left out. You're going to be looked at as the villains. All their perspective is faulty. That is totally wrong. We're standing with a loving savior in the truth. Here we got the spirit of truth with the word of God. And we know how there's a real judgment coming. The one that matters. But listen, the world needs the Holy Spirit to bring conviction concerning judgment, that their judgment, their assessment is completely wrong. They need to know Jesus before the ultimate judgment that comes. And that's a merciful work of the Holy Spirit as well. In fact, that might be happening right now in your heart. In fact, I pray it is in some of you that today you came in thinking, I don't even, I didn't even want to be here when I first came. I'm just doing a friend a favor. I'm doing a family member a favor. I think these people are wrong. And now you're starting to say, wait a minute, I think I've misjudged all of life. I've been going the wrong direction my entire life. My value system, what I thought was good and what I thought was bad is completely off. And the Holy Spirit's helping me to see that, no, Christ is right. I must follow after Jesus. So mercifully, the Spirit brings conviction about the judgment to come ahead of time that people might flee to Christ, be forgiven, and not fear the condemnation that's coming. Again, I pray the Holy Spirit's doing that work in some even now. But then we think about this message of the gospel that we get to take to others. When we think about the role of the Holy Spirit, this great helper, we should have greater boldness than we presently do in sharing the gospel. When you realize when he sends you out in your neighborhood 
or to a distant nation with the gospel, it's not you doing that work by yourself. The Holy Spirit is doing this work of convicting, convicting and convincing. In fact, that's why when you meet missionaries, they never have a prideful attitude where they think, I got this. Imagine a missionary in a city of 20 million people, and they already have a religion. They're already enslaved to some other worldview. They go into that city. They don't think, I have this. And how in the world can I make a dent in this lostness? And then the reminder, oh, I've not been sent here alone. Jesus promised to be with me. He's with me through the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is awesome. And he can bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. So you and I should not be intimidated when we go out with the gospel. So let's close this way. Let me ask a question. Are you living your life without this great helper? Are you trying to serve the Lord without this great helper? And maybe your question there is, well, how do I get his help? First, it's by humbling yourself recognizing your sin, acknowledging what the Holy Spirit's showing you, I am a sinner, I have been a rebel, I have been an enemy of God, and yet he so lovingly gave me a savior who died for me and was raised, I wanna trust in him. I'm gonna be a rebel no longer. I want to trust in Jesus. That's how you enter into this relationship where the Holy Spirit will be a helper to you. Now, here's the good news. The moment you believe in Jesus, you are fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He comes and lives in you. It was dramatic there at Pentecost, the first coming like that. But now ever since then, believers have come to know Christ and the Spirit has indwelled them. That beautiful truth that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because in Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. You already have all of the Spirit, but to be filled with Spirit means he has all of you, that you've surrendered everything to him, that he would live his life through you. One of the illustrations I saw years ago that I liked the most is of a glove. And uh, here I brought with me a, a glove. This is a sports glove. I think I could be a great wide receiver if I had talent in this glove. It's got a little grip on it. It's new balance. This is a pretty cool glove, but it can't do anything. It's not doing any sports just here. But if you put a hand in it, especially if you put in a more impressive hand than mine, uh, this glove could do some amazing things. And I think it illustrates well, you know, you and I are like a glove. You can't do anything. Totally weak. I need to be empowered from within. I need to just be agreeable and submissive to the Holy Spirit that he will do these great things through me. Say, how do I get his help? You want to be yielded to him fully. Don't resist him in any way. That's what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ. That's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's our move as believers, that we live that life. That's not a one-time thing. You're saved one time. He indwells you permanently. But you need to yield to him throughout the day that you might be full of the Holy Spirit and, and watch him do his work in you. So would you trust in him today? Would you believe in Jesus? Would you follow Jesus? Would you surrender everything to him and watch him work for his glory?